0: Well, before we get to the politics this week, Churn, it's a big weekend to celebrate, isn't it? Because uh, Adele's thirty has finally dropped after all this time.
1: Indeed, and as she celebrates go- going past her thirty-third birthday, Sam, but go easy on me, please. I've been literally been crying my heart out listening to it and drinking a lot of wine in the process. Have you?
0: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> anyway, it's Saturday, the twentieth of November. And this is Ballot to Talk About. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Joining me, as always, from the other side of the globe is my co-host, Chern. How are you doing?
1: Well, I'm doing well, thanks. And uh, speaking of anniversaries, there's another anniversary this week that's come up, isn't it, Sam? And something which has been a defining feature of our childhood because it is 20 years to the week since the first Harry Potter film was released. So, Sam, I dare ask that controversial question. Which of of the Harry Potter films was your personal (laughs) favourite?
0: I mean, it is quite controversial because one of my favourite films is The Goblet of Fire, which is like almost universally accepted as one of the worst films in the Harry Potter franchise. But I was always, my favourite book was always Goblet of Fire, so the film adaptation was also um, up there for me. How about you?
1: I prefer the second movie, actually, Chamber of Secrets, actually. I thought that was really cool. Um, a little bit of anecdote was that I first watched Chamber of Secrets around the time when it came out on DVD. Um, if you recall, there was a scene when the Chamber of Secrets opened. There was blood dripping down the walls. And it absolutely terrified me as an 11-year-old watching that scene. And I don't think I slept well that night. Anyway, it put me off watching the rest of the Harry Potter series until... I was 19, actually, and saw it on, uh, saw Deathly Hallows. So I actually, and actually started falling back in love with the franchise. So I watched the first two films in order, then jumped to watch Deathly Hallows Part One and Part Two on local television, um, that was on my local television here in Singapore (laughs) when they were showing it, and then watched everything in between. So it is quite a funny order that I watched it in. But uh, yeah, so there you go. That's the impact Harry Potter can have, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. But uh, I think we should get to the politics because I think that's what everybody's here for anyway. Um, And before we get started on our main features of this week, I thought it was really interesting that this is the weekend when the United States gained their first female president. Well, for an hour and 25 minutes.
1: And yes, this is when uh, President Joe Biden um, went under colonoscopy, isn't it, Sam? And he transferred powers temporarily to the vice president Kamala Harris and we should say though it's a slight technicality on it because the fact he only transferred powers was she only became acting president rather than actually assuming the office of the presidency the full office of the presidency of the United States and through the 25th amendment so a slight technical amendment but nonetheless it is a historic moment isn't it in the U.S. because it's the first time that a woman has assumed except the the highest office in the land. And speaking of women, it was another successful weekend for another female who has also made her own history, Nancy Pelosi, because she got the Build Back Better Act passed through the United States House of Representatives because with the Republican Party universally opposed to it, there was only the chance for three Democrats to defect and the whole bill was going to be defeated. And we only saw one Democrat in the end, which is Jared Golden of Maine, to def- vote against the Bill. So it's an absolutely phenomenal triumph, Sam. So before we talked about the main topics for this week, do you think, Sam, that Nancy Pelosi is one of the most effective speakers that in the United States history?
0: I mean, she- she's certainly up there with effective speakers because the management of such a slim majority, especially in a time when politics tends to be incredibly polarised, to pass these pieces of significant legislation through, I think means that she's a very effective operator. And especially for somebody to come back from um, opposition to become Speaker so successfully multiple times, despite the House caucus for the Democrats becoming smaller, um, I think just is a testament to how much everybody else in the Democratic caucus views her as an effective operator as well.
1: I take the, you know, we compare the Build Back Better Act where she only lost one Democrat to when the Republicans lost 13 of its members over the Infrastructure Public Works Bill a couple of, uh, a week or so ago. To contrast the difference in caucus management, in my opinion, you know, she really knows when exactly to push the buttons to get her caucus to vote in line. And I think her skills as a corralling and uniting the Democrats to what are some tough times in opposition cannot be understated, of course. She has has set her own term limits, if you recall, back in 2018, by promising this would essentially be her last term. So it really is all to see what the Democrats will be moving forward. But certainly, I think getting the Democratic agenda of two very different presidents through, I don't think there could be any other match than any other person, isn't it?
0: And on that note, I think it's a good time to move on to our main features of the week which will be focusing on the results of the midterm elections in Argentina, which, as predicted, has turned out to be a major setback for President Alberto Fernández, and also in Bulgaria, where for the third time this year, Bulgarians have gone to the polls to try and elect their national parliament. And for the third time this year, a different party has won that election. And we'll be talking about whether this time, finally, third time lucky, they'll be able to put together a new administration. I thought, Chen, we could start out with Argentina, um, where, as I said, it's been a bit of an upset for the administration, hasn't it?
1: Indeed, and let's just start uh, by informing our listeners what the final breakdown was in both the chamber and deputies, where half of the seats were up for election, and the Senate, where a third of the seats were up for election. So. The big winners here were the Jundos Pol El Campio coalition, which secured 61 seats, which is uh, with 42% of the vote. And because half the chambers up for election, they will have a total of 116 seats. The ruling Frente de Todos coalition secured 59 seats. That's down two, but more damaging was the fact they only secured 34% of the vote. So eight points behind the centre-right coalition. But nonetheless, overall, they will have 118 seats. So they will still have the first minority and will probably re-elect Sergio Massa as president of the Chamber of Deputies. The left and workers' front have four seats, just up two, with 6% of the vote. And the conservative and libertarian bloc will have five seats in the chamber. That's up four, and they newly entered the legislature. And the federal consensus also appeared to be losers in this election. They have three seats, down three. And the remaining seats went to regional parties, actually. In the Senate, it was probably more damaging for the governing coalition, Peronis, who had the Juntos Polo Campio coalition secured 14 seats, which is up five with 47% of the vote, ending up and would have a total of 31 seats in the legislature. The Frente del Todos coalition will have nine seats, was down four, with only 28% of the vote. And they will have a total of 35 seats. But crucially, this is below the 37 seats needed for quorum or effective control of the chamber. So the president of the uh, Senate, uh, Vice President Christina Fernandez de Kirchner, will have some work cut out for her in order to get government's bill to pass through the legislature. And the federal consensus took the last seat with 11% of the vote. So Sam, let's start with the big picture. Do you think these results were as bad as the for the governing Frente de Todos coalition as feared we talked about in our podcast last week?
0: I mean, I actually think it's almost worse than feared by the Frente de Todos because we were kind of expecting that they would hemorrhage seats in the Chamber of Deputies because the primary elections are usually a pretty good indicator of where public opinion sits, as we talked about last week, and they actually did slightly better in the chamber of deputies than they did in the primaries, but still lost a lot of seats and only held on to plurality of seats in the chamber by two seats overall. So really holding on by the skin of their teeth. But why I think these results were almost worse than they feared is because of what happened in the Senate. Because for the first time since the democratization of Argentina, a Peronist party will not have quorum in the Senate. And whilst they're still the biggest party in the Senate, it will just mean that passing legislation can be more easily disrupted by the opposition than ever before. Usually, the Chamber of Deputies is where the Peronis would have some problems, but the Senate was never a problem, whereas now, in the Senate, they're now going to have the same problem. Um, so actually I think it's turned out to be quite a problematic set of results and it will make the next two years for the Fernandez government very difficult indeed.
1: Just give you an indication of some other further problems. In we talked in your last podcast about the fact that yes, Buenos Aires province dominates, but the second and third largest province were Cordoba and Santa Fe, and the opposition Juntos Polar Campio coalition got 54% of the vote in Cordoba and 40% in Santa Cruz. Now, the significance of that is that both would be if those kind, if the opposition could get 40% of the results nationwide, they could easily win the presidency in the first round, because in Argentina, the president does can kind of avoid going for a third round if they secure 40% of the vote and are 10% clear of the opposition. So. On both these accounts, these results are disastrous in terms of Alberto Fernandez holding on their job. But nonetheless, Sam, I do think that, yes, these results are bad. But I think still, Buenos Aires province does provide a glimmer of hope for for the governing coalition. It's where more than one third of the electorate are based. And there is evidence that the government has closed the gap in the opposition since the primary elections in September. And even though the opposition won the elections with one point in November, this was significantly less than the five points or so that they won in the September primary election. So it is less bad as it thought. And therefore, I suspect we should not agree that it might give the government some hope that with a longer run-up to the next midterm, the next general elections in two years' time, they could turn
0: it around, can't they? I, I completely understand your point, especially comparing the results in Buenos Aires, from the primaries to this general election. The only asterisk I'd put on it is a lot of the things we talk about when we're analyzing election results tend to be about trends. And it certainly seems that Buenos Aires province is trending away from the Peronists, at least in the short term. Because even if you look at 2015 where it was the election where the Peronists lost control of the presidency, yes, their chamber of deputy results were slightly more promising than the presidential election. But within that environment, they still won Buenos Aires province by five points. And now they've lost it by one point with a presidential election two years away. And the Peronists will be incredibly um, aware that if they were to lose Buenos Aires by one point, that is the presidency over. That is game over. Um, so they'll be, I think they'll be really conscious of trying to get Buenos Aires back on side because even in a national context where they won Buenos Aires, the largest province, by five points, they still lost the presidency. And they're quite a distance away from that.
1: Indeed. This is a light, but it's a long road ahead, is I think what we can say, in what has been a very gloomy night for the Peronists moving forward. And moving forward, what do you think will happen for in Congress? Because we now have a situation where, you know, in the Senate, You know, Cristina Fernandez was frankly not known for negotiating, having picked fights in her presidency with the agriculture sector, the media and the judiciary will have to negotiate just to get legislation passed. So what do you think Argentina will do next in terms of A, its upcoming bailout negotiations with the IMF, which it has to do, and overall its legislative agenda? Because frankly, it's got no shortage of problems, hasn't it, Sam?
0: It really does, and there's some really complex political questions to be answered potentially in the short term in Argentina, not least the IMF negotiation, which if the negotiations are successful, which is a huge if at this point because they have been dragging on for quite some time, especially in the context of potentially another looming wave of COVID-19, but if they are successful, and they have to pass the terms of it through Congress, well, the governing party no longer have um, a majority, uh, and they don't barely have a plurality, and the opposition have a very different perspective on how these IMF negotiations should go. So I think trying to pass any kind of IMF settlement is going to be incredibly difficult. and. Even on a broader legislative point, I really do think we're now heading for two years of pretty much lame duck status for Alberto Fernandez because um, the Senate, for example, are involved in um, confirming a lot of judicial appointments. Well... The Fernandez part, the Frente de Todos and um, Juntos por el Cambio have very different perspectives on how the judiciary should be run. So I think the chances of passing any significant judicial appointments are pretty much zero at this point. So I kind of think Argentina, apart from more run-of-the-mill budgetary pledges and um and updating legislation i really think it might be a bit of a legislative legislative ghost town for the next 2 years to be honest waiting for the presidential election to take place and also for the mandate of the chamber of deputies to be uh uh renewed
1: well that doesn't really help argentina because let's be honest it's a country in need of massive reform isn't it and if you have legislative gridlock akin to like what the us is essentially maybe heading next year you know, just keeping the government alive is not necessarily a good way in the long term to run a country, isn't it? So,
0: Do you, do you think it will be gridlocked? Do you agree?
1: I find it very hard to escape that conclusion, to be honest, particularly if, and I suspect the supporters of Cristina Fernandez, de Kirchner, because if you recall after the primary, she put out a statement essentially calling for a change of direction in the government. And her supporters would point to the fact that they saw an improvement in the crucial province of Buenos Aires. So they might feel more emboldened to continue on that path, which is completely divergent from where the opposition, which will have momentum over the next two years, will be heading. So if the governing coalition, and it seems very likely that her associates still control very much the Frente de Todos coalition, is heading in a completely different direction from the opposition, you are heading for an ideologically wider split, which, for President Alberto Fernández who is trying to find compromises and bring both sides together, his task would be much more monumentally difficult.
0: No, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, do you think Cristina Fernández might be emboldened in the next two years to mount a significant challenge to Alberto Fernández's grip on the party? Or do you think this coalition of convenience that exists within Frente de Todos will actually be sustained just by necessity?
1: I think the big question is whether she would seek the presidency again, because putting her face at the top of the ticket was probably a bit too controversial. And she could probably wield her power as she has done behind the scenes, particularly effectively over the last couple of months with her weak Alberto Fernandez, because frankly, the president's authority has been shot. I think it's a more politically smart move to continue wielding her power behind the scene, which she probably will be doing over the next couple of years. So I think her role is still very much in the background behind it, rather than being the public face on it, to be frank. So from that point of view, I think she would become louder, but still very much behind the scenes. Do you agree with that analysis, Sam?
0: I think you're probably right. Um, I think the one thing that suggests that she might not go to significant lengths in disrupting this relationship is because of what you said about, I just don't think she has the number of allies required to mount a successful bid for the presidency without being aligned to the kind of faction on the left that Alberto Fernandez represents and currently presides over. And given the poor results in the primary, which she did then impose some of her faction's preferences upon the party following those primary results, and then to still go on to lose, I just don't know if the if she's been able to successfully take the political temperature of Argentina, given that even with a changed cabinet and slightly changed policy approach in advance of these general elections, she wasn't really able to turn around the fortunes of Frente de Todos significantly enough to then go on to successfully defend seats in this election. So I think for both her and Alberta Fernandez, the best place to be, at the moment, is working together to try and maintain a, a, a substantial electoral coalition that they too represent.
1: And a final point I should note is that Cristina Fernandez was absent from um, the victory, well, the coming together party of um, that Alberto Fernandez hosted in front of the Frente de la Toda's coalition party supporters on election night, ostensibly because she was recovering from a surgery that she suffered a month ago. So. That was the official statement, but I think you and I can probably infer, Sam, of how their relationship currently is at the moment, isn't it?
0: Yes, especially given the letter that she wrote after the primary elections. I wonder if she's penning another one as we speak.
1: And finally, Sam, before we move on, are there any other big stories or takeaways from Argentina's elections? Because this is, we'll be coming back to Argentina in two years' time. And this is the first time we've covered this country, so any other big stories or takeaways that you have noted?
0: For me, I think there's two takeaways um, for this election to keep an eye on as we build up to the presidential election in 2023. And both of these stories are radically different, because one is about the far right of Argentinian politics, and one conversely is about the far left, because I'll start with the left because the the left Workers Front, which is a Trotskyist leftist party, actually won the third largest national vote share in this Chamber of Deputies election. Which, for a party of that size and that political background, is quite a big a big um shock. So they got six percent of the national vote, which translated into four seats in the Chamber of Deputies, two in Buenos Aires, one in the city of Buenos Aires and one in the northwesterly state of Jujuy, And then also on the other side, we have the far right, which we talked about a bit last week, where we were gonna keep an eye on how Javier Milay's party performed. Well, they got 17% of the vote in the city of Buenos Aires and finished the night on five seats in the Chamber of Deputies. This is the first handful of seats for the far right in Argentina since democratization. So it's a big shift in terms of the political representation in the chamber. And it includes, um, as we talked about last week, Victoria Villarreal, who denies the presence of state terrorism under the previous regime. Well, she won a seat. And they. I think what is notable from this party's performance is that they were able to feed on a cocktail of issues, so it wasn't just one thing. Um, They were critical of COVID restrictions, critical of climate policy, um, very nationalist, critical of the economic situation, and some of these things are only going to get worse in the next two years, so I just wonder how this party might end up performing in two years' time when potentially the economic situation has declined even further because of COVID. And climate politics are really becoming more of a mainstream thing to focus on for governments all over the world. So with these kind of with this context in mind, I wonder if Javier Milli's Liberty Advances Party might be here to stay.
1: I think a bit of a wider point you talk about the rise of the radical elements actually of because it's the far left and the far right, suggesting uh, a lot of voters are disillusioned with the political system in Argentina, which considering, let's say, you've known a Peronist government for most of your life and the memories of the last centre-right government are relatively raw and relatively um, painful for quite a lot of Argentinian population. I wouldn't be surprised to see the rise of the far left and far right elements, actually very similar to many of the European countries, isn't it, Sam? Um, I think I would say as well that I've got an interesting stat about the far-left performance in Jujay province. They actually got 25% of the vote in the northern province of Juja province. Just a small province, but still a, f- a phenomenal achievement for a party that frankly wasn't on the radar of many Argentine voters up to this point. And that wider point of disillusionment can be seen by the fact that more than a million Argentinians actually spoiled their votes or m- blanked their votes, suggesting that A lot of them went to the polls, largely in protest, actually, against the established two parties. And I think another takeaway that I have personally is the fact that midterm elections in Argentina do not have a good predictor, certainly if you take the last three, on what the results in the next election will be. And I think that's a good point to end on because it does suggest that there's hope for the Frente de Todos coalition led by Fernandez and Fernandez, and the opposition cannot take its wins for granted. So in 2009, the then Front for Victory, led by Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, lost its absolute majority in both houses of Congress. She won an emphatic re-election in 2011, with the with the, with the only Argentine president since his restoration in of democracy, to win an absolute majority of the vote and 37 percent margin of victory was better than Juan Peron's massive landslide victory in 1973. In 2013. It was seen as a relative success for the government as it held its majority in both chambers, but it did not stop the change in the centre-right administration two years later. And in 2017 midterms, again, you know, it was the government made gains, particularly in the lower house chamber of deputies. It did not stop them the other times from changing the government in two years' time. So lots more to look forward to, isn't it, Sam?
0: Absolutely.
1: And so as one set of election comes to an end in Argentina, Another is set to begin next in a na- its neighbouring Republic of Chile, which will head to the polls on Sunday for its first run of the presidential election and legislative elections. And that is poised to be an exciting climax. So stay tuned and we'll be back to this region very soon.
0: So welcome back to Ballot to Talk About and the second half of our elections review podcast that we're doing this week And now we'll be diving into the parliamentary election results from Bulgaria, which, I mean, Chen, we've been here before this year, haven't we? We certainly have.
1: I mean, this is the third time this year. In fact, when we were planning this podcast, Sam, we thought, oh, God, Bulgaria again. I think we can avoid talking about the parties again and go straight to results. But Sam, why don't you give listeners a a background to the results? Because frankly... None of us have heard about the party who came first, haven't you?
0: Well, it didn't exist two months ago. So the elections in Bulgaria this time around were won by the We Continue the Change Party, which was formed by the incumbent interim economy minister um, and entrepreneur Kirik Petkov and the interim finance minister Asen Vasilev for the purpose of fighting this election. And they won it with 67 seats and 26% of the vote. Um, Boyko Borisov's former party, GERB, won 59 seats, which was down four, uh, at 23% of the vote, which continues their string of the third time this year they have recorded their worst ever parliamentary election result. And then in third place was the Turkish Minority Party Movement for Rights and Freedoms, which got 34 seats and 13% of the vote. And then the Bulgarian Socialist Party got 26 seats and 10% of the vote, which, again, for the third time this year, is their worst ever election result. And then the party which won the parliamentary election back in July, the There is Such a People Party, Slavi Trifonov's party, lost most of its caucus, down to 25 seats, and only got 10% of the vote, which is down significantly from winning the election just five months ago. And then also we had Democratic Bulgaria on 16 seats and the far-right Revival Party on 13 seats. So Churn, just looking at these results, what are your big initial takeaways? A
1: couple of them. First of all, this is a massive fail for the opinion polls, actually, because it predicted the socialists with around 16% of the vote and they got about 11%. And no one really saw the... We continue the change party, which ended up topping the polls, come out top with 26% of the vote. Opinion polls had put them in the mid-teens, actually. So that was between 15 16%. So this is, seems to be a not very good day for opinion polls in Bulgaria. We should note as well that the poor results of the socialists has ensured that its chairwoman, Cornelius Nivova, has resigned as chairwoman of the party. So there's already... And uh, another casualty was the democratic... A Yes, Bulgaria, which is part of the Democratic Bulgaria uh, Electoral Alliance, or Ivanov has also resigned over poor election results as well. I think the bigger takeaway is that there is a lot of shopping around of around one quarter of the electorate to look for centrist anti-corruption parties. In, 20, in the July election, was there such a people's party. Now it is a we continue to change party. I think that's the first takeaway with that. And I think a wider disappointment of the electorate in general, having, with justification to having to go to the polls for the third time, can be seen turnout where it was only at 40%, which is the lowest participation rate in presidential and parliamentary elections. The first time it's grouped together in 30 years. So I think that's a bigger, dis- the underlying critique, and we're going to talk later about Bulgaria's chances of forming a government. But I think one thing we should mention at the top is that overall, Bulgarians, I think, went rather reluctantly to the polls for the third time this year. And the fact that they moved their votes en masse to a new party, um, a new centrist anti-corruption party, suggests that voters do care about anti-corruption measures, but they are just disappointed by what the offerings were on show, isn't it, Sam?
0: Yeah, I mean, Bulgaria does have a history of having quite a short... Um, birth-death cycle for political parties. I mean, for example, back in 2001, the NDSV party won almost a majority of seats as an individual party, and then in the next election in 2005 basically lost half of their caucus, and then by the next election it completely evaporated. So it's not unusual for parties to have these short cycles like there is such a people And potentially the change continues, which just won this election. But, I mean, there's short cycles and then there's five-month cycles um, for the birth and death of political parties, um, which I think is a, a real startling statistic, really, for this we continue the change party to come from absolutely nowhere to winning an election and potentially being on the verge of actually solving the Bulgarian political deadlock. So... I guess a huge question to start with Chern as well is, do you think that it will be third time lucky for Bulgaria?
1: Well, touch wood, let's be honest, because we have been here before, but I do think the numbers are there because if we if we, we continue to change, was combining there such people? Plus a democratic Bulgaria, and they do share anti-corruption initiatives and a more center, possibly center-left leaning government, is combined with the socialists, you actually get 134 seats in the legislature, which in a parliament of 240 will get you over the line, actually. So there is, unlike previous election, there is the aim, there is finally a coalition able to be put there that gets. A government over the line, which was not available in July. So I think, therefore, the the, the goal is there, which was not previously before. And given that you have a target to aim at, I think it's very incumbent on the parties to form together. And as well, there will be pressure on that we continue the change. Because I suspect one of the reasons for the poor performance of There is Such a People's Party was the fact that a lot of its voters who voted for it, a lot of younger voters, which attracted so well in the July election, simply move en masse to this new party. And there will be a lot of pressure to put a coalition for, we continue to change, put a coalition together and form a government really. So it really, the onerous is on them to form a government and therefore the pressure is as well. So I think it does give Bulgarians potentially, the light is there at the end of the tunnel. And we continue the change has been quite open-minded about forming governments with these anti-corruption parties as well. In fact, it also stated that it will be willing to work with both GER and the centrist minority movement for rights and freedoms. But so long as the former party supported the replacement of the chief prosecutor, Ivan Gersiv, and the the ethnic minority-based party supported and dropped contact with the ex MP Dallin Pivsky. So I think the fact that it's starting with an open mind certainly gives it options in trying to break this deadlock, which potentially could mean its end. And I think another point about the fact that there is pressure is the fact that the revival, the far-right parties, entered the legislature as well. And I think the presence of a far-right element could force the centrists to come together and put aside what differences that could remain, given such an existential threat to their politics that they so espouse. Do you not agree, Sam, given all this pressure and the numbers are there, that this is a good opportunity for Bulgarians to escape the cycle of elections?
0: I, I couldn't agree more. I think the numbers do seem on the surface to be there. And crucially, this time, I think the political will is there for these parties to work together and I think one difference is that I think the socialists, because you might say haven't we been here before because in July the numbers were there for a four party coalition that included the three anti-corruption parties led by there is such people and the socialists, the numbers were there and actually there's there's fewer seats available in a four party coalition this time than there was in July but I think the crucial difference here is that the socialists are more likely to work with um, the Change Continues Party than the There Is Such a People's Party, I think, because of the leadership, because the leadership of Change Continues have political experience now, because they've been key ministers within the interim government since July. And crucially, the interim government since July has been more of a centrist operation and less of a populist operation than there is such a people as a party. And also, The Change Continues came out very early in this cycle to endorse um, Rumin Radev as president, who is the socialist president of Bulgaria as well. So I think even in doing that, they were trying to give an olive branch over to the socialist party in advance of this election cycle. And as you said, I think the context of revival being a potential threat and also just the looming concern about having a fourth election, which is just mind-boggling really, because at that point, what on earth do you do? Because let's assume they do have a fourth election and no party does any better than 26%. Well, then you're just back to square one, whereas now... Yes, this coalition between the anti-corruption parties and the socialists works numerically, and yes, they are quite a broad range of ideological positions, but if they can form some kind of government that even just lasts a year or two years, that's better than just vacillating and holding another election for the sake of it on the off chance that somebody performs better than 26%, which. Knowing Bulgarian elections this year is just not going to happen, is it, Chern?
1: No, it has. It, it would not. And I think the key thing is as well is that first of all we get Israeli level of elections, really, which is a bit ridiculous for a country not necessarily used to it, unlike Israel. And I think as well, like you said, one of the, as I mentioned earlier, given that the one of the things that seems to be motivating and voters who vote for anti-corruption parties is the fact that they want a government put together there is that pressure put on it as well. What do you think, though, from the socialist point of view, will it want to go into government? Because its third has been going down in vote share pretty consistently over the last three elections. And I think it's not going to be a major player in this government. And we're told often enough about junior coalition parties suffering. But do you still think they would want to go in?
0: I actually tend to think that they might want to go in this time around because... I could understand the apprehension previously because when a government didn't form before, we both talked about in July, because I went back and looked at our notes and what we were talking about, about how the socialists might actually benefit from another election because they might stand to be the not populist, there is such a people party, but equally not Gerb and not Borisov. And we thought they might actually stand to benefit from this period of uncertainty following the second election in 2021. Well, the exact opposite happened. They slid back even further. And if I were in the Socialist Party, I'd be concerned that if we didn't join this government or didn't even try, then we might be alienating the anti-corruption kind of electoral pool, which might be where the winds of change actually are in Bulgaria. And if you sit outside of that movement, if you sit outside of forming a government to try and combat significant corruption in Bulgaria, then I'm not sure you have a, a, a political future in the short term because you're not GERB and you're not the anti-corruption coalition and the anti-corruption alliance. So really, I think they might view this as an opportunity to get on the bandwagon with the anti-corruption movement and try and rebuild a political future from that perspective, rather than being left outside of the fray and just continuing to hemorrhage voters to newer parties.
1: And I think the threat is there as well, because we continue to change. is actually a coalition of four component parties in them. We continue the change itself, which is by far the dominant party, but it also includes VOLT, which is actually a pan-European, center center left party as well and also part of it is the social democrats actually as well so there's quite a bit of potential policy overlap between the socialists and the so and this we continue the change party and there's a risk like you said given the anti-corruption nature fervor that it could just be swallowed up even more particularly I suspect that if a government is formed there could be quite a burst of euphoria as in Bulgaria's findings putting aside really and there's a rush to support this new go- we continue to change government. So I think they could be potentially left out that conversation, and their voters, and their core support, which are, which clearly seems to be falling in the last three elections, actually might disappear and go somewhere else. So I think given that risk, they have a bad. They should remain inside. But nonetheless, Sam, I think one of the things we can say as well is that not only do voters want a credible anti-corruption party, you know, the fact that they also put owners of forming government. How do you think we continue to change, which will probably supply the next prime minister, hold on to these voters? Because we mentioned before about the short turnover between birth and death of a party. How do you think that this coalition can break that hole and remain, you know, beyond the fact that, beyond a boycott Borisov, which seems to have controlled GERD, you know for you know very effectively for 10 over years how can they remain the political scene beyond the next election
0: well i think that's quite a difficult question i mean i think the first step to this might be what you just mentioned which is if they do manage to form a government i think there will be a lot of um people willing them on to make this government successful because i think the last thing bulgarians want is to have to go to the polls anytime soon again after doing it three times already this year. Um, As for beyond the next election, I think that's tricky because as I mentioned, the, the 2001 case with the NDSV party, they only lasted one electoral cycle and they did significantly better than we continue the change in their first electoral cycle by nearly getting an overall majority of seats, just missing out by one. I think what they would need to do is manage is is try and come up with how this party is going to work in combination with the others because as I said if this coalition is formed it includes people on the political spectrum all the way from the communist wing of the socialist party all the way up to the quite center right and socially conservative elements of there is such a people and democratic bulgaria so I think they're going to have to, if they want a political future, try and navigate how they're going to work with that government. Because I think the voters, once an anti-corruption government is formed and once they start combating institutional corruption in Bulgaria, then people will start to talk about other issues and will splinter off into their quite traditional ideological lanes. And if the We Continue, the Change Party doesn't really have a lane, and the other members of the government do, then they might quickly fade away. So I think, really, that we continue the change party, if they do end up leading the government, whilst they're doing that to try and combat anti-corruption, in the background need to be coming up with some sort of ideological, political platform and making that very clear, because whatever happens, I can't see this kind of coalition lasting a full term. So an election that's fought on other issues than ousting gerb might come around quickly. And I think if the Let's Continue the Change Party want to survive, they're going to have to have quite a clear message and quickly. Do do you agree with that? I think
1: one of the things that um, we needed to be also be careful about is that anti-corruption policies or initiatives often take a long time to see its effects, particularly if culture of corruption is embedded within the country. It might take a whole generation to replace this current generation of corrupt leaders. Yes, you can have some short term wins. And that is crucial, particularly setting a signalling function that you are carrying and implementing what is clearly a priority for nearly a quarter of the electorate over the last two terms, last two elections. But in terms of I, I think you, I absolutely agree with you that getting an ideology down and implementing reforms to people's standard of living and livelihood because Bulgaria is not short of problems. You can see inflation is hitting nearly 5% in Bulgaria and rising. It's got a relatively low COVID vaccination rate, which in the era of delta variants of coronavirus really punishing its countries. Let's be honest, healthcare infrastructure wasn't that great in the first place. So not only is that anti-corruption is an it's um is a big issue, but other policy initiatives are also very important as well and getting a government up and running and then hitting the ground running with policies also I suspect particularly important for this party moving forward. Um time is running out on this fascinating discussion on two sets of elections. But I do want to mention the fact that tomorrow Bulgarians will go to the polls for its second round of its presidential election. In the first round held concurrently last Sunday, incumbent president Rumin Radev secured agonisingly short of the 50% needed to avoid a second round. I think, Sam, this is probably one of the easier questions we've answered in the last couple of weeks. We do think he's going to be re-elected president, isn't he?
0: I would imagine so. I think it would be an immense shock if he doesn't, given how close he was. And given, as I said, that the Change Continues Party, which just won the parliamentary election, I mean when you get 26% how big of a victory actually is that but given that the part given that that party also endorsed his socialist campaign for president i give i think there will be a lot of coalescing around rumen radev in the ballot tomorrow and i think he might win with quite a large margin in the end actually so sam any final takeaways from bulgaria um that you have um I think i will reserve that judgment for if a government actually gets formed because one of my takeaways probably would be that eventually people realize that forming a government is more important than individual party aims it's certainly in the case of the socialist party but that might end up not coming true if a government is not formed in bulgaria this time around so i'm going to reserve judgment for now do you have any big takeaways
1: I think, like you, it would largely depend on that. But I think as well, what is very clearly seen is that I I think the the same thing still applies in Bulgaria, like in many other countries. We've seen in Argentina the rise of the opposition of factions. This third election, we've had a different party leading the vote in Bulgaria. We saw the opposition do well in Argentina, not only the centre-right opposition, but the more radical elements as well. Here, a party too... um, two months ago wasn't even found that has topped the polls in its first attempt. So there's clearly a big anti-incumbency factor or anti whoever was the winner of the last Mm -hmm. election flowing through the country. And I think I would just say as well that this part of the Eastern Europe, where you know Greece has often been um, vulnerable to authoritarian tendencies. I think these election results could be very interesting in next year when we go to Hungary because I think it shows you that particularly for the Hungarians might look at, Viktor Orban might look at these election results with a little bit of nervousness. Not only the fact he's an incumbent who has been in power since 2010. And yes, he will go in with structural advantages as well. But nonetheless, two entrepreneur, free market, centrist party has topped the polls on its first attempt. And there clearly is still you know, appetite for those centre-right, center right, century centre-right center free market reforms in Eastern Europe itself. So that is antithesis of the current Viktor Orban brand as well. So I think these elections could be very interesting. You don't you not know, agree for the mm. Hungarian elections next year?
0: Absolutely. And I think the final thing I'd say for the opposition in Bulgaria to take away is Israel might be a good story to actually look at because, I think the Israeli election this year that eventually led to Naftali Bennett being elected as prime minister was a testament to the fact that once the winds of change are blowing against an incumbent party and an incumbent government, even if it takes a lot of elections to get there, the trajectory is clear. And I think that's certainly true in Bulgaria, that clearly a majority of the Bulgarian people want to remove GERB from office and want to have a party leading the government who is not GERB. Well, they just can't decide at the moment who that is going to be. But it's certain that I think eventually Bulgaria will get to a point where a government is elected which GERB is not included in which eventually happened in Israel as well when they finally managed to remove Benjamin Netanyahu, which did seem to be a general political objective in Israel for quite some time. So I think those two cases are actually quite comparable.
1: And finally, as well, in Israel, I think you bring up another interesting point. is the ideological diversity of that coalition itself. Natalie Bennett, you've got a far right and you've got the Israeli Labour Party operating in the same coalition. And I think one of the underreported stories you don't tell about this podcast is the fact we're not talking about the Israeli election as of now. When frankly, I think Sam, you and I were quite skeptical that it would last for a longer period of time, but it does seem to be so far holding itself together. And I think the fact that you can have parties that across the ideological spectrum can work together to oust an incumbent will also be, again, uh, worrying signal for Orbán itself, given he's facing united opposition for the first time. And now we can also see in Bulgaria, potentially that winds of change blowing through. So it does look like, when there is a will, potentially after three elections, there is a way.
0: Absolutely, and I think that's a good point to end on, because that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again next week, when we'll be analysing the state of politics in Chile. Argentina's neighbour following their general election, and as always, we'll continue to bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections around the globe. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at, at ballot underscore talk, and do leave us a rating or review or simply tell your friends about us. My name is Sam, and until next time, we'll speak to you soon.